Have you ever found God in church? I never did. I just found a bunch of folks hoping for him to show. Any God I ever felt in church, I brought in with me. And I think all the other folks did too. They come to church to share God, not find God. Alice Walker, The Color Purple. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, April 25th, 2016, and this year has been quite a doozy. See you on the other side, Prince. And also, sorry for our absence last week. But in better news, we have rescheduled our show with Eric Davis on Technosis for mid-May. Lots of great stuff coming, too, so stay tuned. But today, we have the pleasure of meeting someone I first met at the Boise Springs Sync. Author, publisher, editor, astrologer, translator, artist, amazing, Dr. Jen Zart. Jennifer Zart, Ph.D., writes about the history, philosophy, and epistemology of astrology with a special focus on the German cultural realm. Her doctoral thesis, entitled The Astrological Imagery in Early 20th Century Germany, University of California, Berkeley, 2012, concerns the way in which astrology shaped philosophy, literature, and the arts during the Weimar Republic. A chapter from this thesis appeared in Sky and Symbol, Sophia Center Press, 2013. Since 2007, Zart has worked as a professional editor, working for a number of academic literary journals. And also as a recognized expert in the field of cultural history of astrology, astrology, she has taught and lectured domestically and internationally in places such as Germany, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Her work is not limited to astrology alone, however. In 2013, she translated Zoroaster's telescope from German into English for the first time, and other articles have appeared in the Three Penny Review, including their book Tabletop, which she also co-edited with Wendy Lesser and Mimi Chuck. Zard is currently working on a book entitled Strategies of Legitimacy, Astrological Polemics in Pre-World War II Germany. Zart co-founded and runs Rubido... Is that right? It's Rubido. Rubido Press with Dr. Aaron Cheek and serves on the board of trustees of Kepler College. It was great that we're finally having her on the program. How are you doing this morning, Jen? I'm doing great. Wonderful. And so uh, before we launch into this, because for some reason the prince has really just kind of pulled a, ru- a purple rug out from underneath me, how, what what prince mean to you in your life? Kind of a constant background and my stepdad grew up working in record stores when he was 19. That was one of his first jobs, and he worked there for a long time. So as a youth, I was constantly exposed to music that now when people say, how old are you? Why are you interested in music of that generation? Um, that, you know, I know about a lot of musicians who I probably necessarily, like, shouldn't know. But Prince was always among them, and yet we didn't really obsess over him because there was so much music in the house too Mm -hmm. so he was part of the field and definitely somebody I always expected would be a constant so I was very surprised to watch this week unfold yeah me too I mean he he pops up every now and again with something amazing and then but you never saw him live have you no I didn't yeah and now I'm 
super regretful because I think there may have been opportunities in the past, but now they're not. Right, and I noticed he was 12 years younger than David Bowie as well when he passed, so I'm thinking about those 12 years of potential making that aren't going to be made at a minimum, you know, I mean, Do Bowie also died young, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and then, I mean, so it's bizarre how there's this similarness to their stardom, but at the same time, they're quite different artists, too. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, but they both had a lot of substance and a lot of spirituality, too. Okay, well, that's sad. Uh, and I guess we'll be dealing with that for a while. But so, um, as just as another thing to before we dig in, um, you came to Boise and hung out at the sink house and were part of the Boise Spring Sink. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your experiences and what um, kind of memories you've taken with you out of that? Sure, yeah. Um, we rolled up and the first thing that happened was Hannah opened the door and um, she's one of the four women who attended and she stood there glistening and just welcoming and we slowly came into the house into an already very active conversation and there were very complicated books piled on the table along with various bits of food and people were pretty amazing and I didn't actually have any real concept of the community before I showed up that moment. Um, sometimes I like to do that is not learn about something before I do it because uh -huh. I want to learn about it as it's unfolding. And so... Everybody was completely welcoming, and we had a great conversation that night. And then the next day, we went to see these petroglyphs, which are ancient stone uh, paintings or carvings into stones that have been around for 15,000 years or more. And um, I think when most Americans think about Idaho, they don't know about all of the potential richness in its landscape. I think we think of most like, you know, stereotypes like a potato or, um, you know, yeah, yeah or like, where people go to like be, you know, off the grid or something like that. Um, and so most of the land coming across from Oregon, there was a mountain range and then suddenly it sort of opened up to a flatness. But then when we climbed back out of the city to go into where the petroglyphs were, it's like the earth kind of opened up and it was like, here's like, it's not a gaping wound at all. It was like this old scar that had sort of like, like crusted and then the wind was really incredible that day as we were climbing around these ancient rocks and these tiny hardy grasses were sort of like vibrating and we kind of started exploring where these images were kept and this kind of mountain sage was growing that put off a really like pungent medicinal smell like almost almost antiseptic and very like sharp mm -hmm. and I was asking the plant like do you want me to take you home and it actually said no it was like, don't touch me. Because, <laughs> I mean, I was like, this would be really amazing to harvest this smell. And it was like, oh, no, no, I belong here. So I had to resist the urge to wildcraft. But, and I, a friend of mine later said, that's a bit odd. But I was like, no, that landscape was very special and strange. It, very, it was like it had its own containment um, because it has to live with so much wind and, uh, and scarcity in this weird way. There was a kind of scarcity to it. But... The petroglyphs themselves were also great, um, obviously, like, but situating them in their landscape, it was pretty amazing to see, like, how there was this kind of, like, really hardcore preservation um, going on. Um, very beautiful day. Um, yeah. And then that sort of was a major memory for me, I think, because I was so alive with everybody in the landscape, and we were just 
riffing on what we were seeing and trying to interpret these things. An interesting thing that I realized after the fact was one of the one of the petroglyphs was kind of this this picture of what and so we learned that some are abstract images and some are representational images and some are curvy linear rep, you know just kind of curves and things but uh, one of the represent representational images was this kind of um, it was like a head but with horns kind of almost like where the wild things no 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 really yes and it looks exactly like the hat that you bought could you tell our audience about your hat and why you bought the hat hat. okay so another guy and i i think his name began with a c but now my mind is completely blanking but he was from california and such a sweetheart he and i started going on a walk to the thrift shop across the street from the sink house that was called serendipity so obviously you have to go right um <laughs> and we start climbing around in there and i'm seeing vintage clothes like i haven't seen since the late 90s like my little inner 14 year old is like buzzing you know like oh my god whoa and in the back towards the cash register they have this mannequin and she had this buffalo hat on and i shaved my head two months ago for personal reasons, I had a really like um, I've been thinking about it for a very long time, but I finally found the right moment to do it at the start of the fire monkey year, and so I'd been experiencing quite a cold dome for the last two months, and there we were suddenly in Idaho, and springtime hadn't quite set in yet, so I was like, you know, I'm feeling a bit cold up top. That hat's kind of cool, and then we got whisked away because we were going to walk in the labyrinth and. The money didn't leave my hands yet, and we walked over to the labyrinth without the Minotaur hat. So then <laughs> I felt this lack, like it became screaming, like you've got to go back and get that hat. Like it's even if you guys don't go back to the labyrinth, like clearly you should have gotten it then. So now you, they, there's only one thing to do. So I, I went back right away, and as we walked back from the labyrinth, I'm like, all right, now this is time, and I got the hat. Um, and what did you think about the labyrinth walk? It was interesting how that completely organically happened. Yeah. As far as as far as how the group the the large group entered the labyrinth and then uh yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you led us there and I had no idea where this was going to be and I was fantasizing it would be something more rural like the petroglyphs had been. Um but we walked through this neighborhood to this magical backyard of some man who's built this intimate labyrinth in the back by his horse and um you actually entered first, and we started to follow you, but everyone just began to hold hands, and then they kept holding hands, and as we wound around, we became snake-like and penetrated, and just like, it was like, you know, you couldn't walk very fast, and so everybody slowed down, the whole vibe just got more chill and quiet, and then at certain points of it, it the energy would rise a bit, and then lower, and everyone was discussing and commenting on that as it happened as well and then you sat in the middle once you finally had gotten there and we all circled around you and then this kind of awesome vortex opened up and it was like this mad like group hug around you but it wasn't actually it didn't actually turn into a group hug but we were all just kind of like oh my gosh this is so amazing (laughs) and then um the idea sprouted that we should go out opposite of the way we came in so I was in second behind Alan at the at going into it and then I was last second to last coming out of it and it was like this unwinding so it was like wind up hug dug wind out 
you know. Um, and I thought that was neat because at one point I think Misty's skunk scarf fell off and she's like, no, leave it there. It's what happened, you know. Yeah. So there was like this, you know, it's like what needs to happen now and little things would happen and sort of, yeah, it was really nice the way that the group, without question, just kind of decided to take its own structure. Yeah, like a self-organizing system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's use that as a springboard to kind of jump into so the it, it's the idea that the thing that needed to happen happened without too much thought. I mean, I'm the kind of person that wants more structure than so it's I don't like to let things happen so much as to know that the right thing is going to happen. So I'm more of a a planner. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you can only plan so much and then life happens. But as far as what astrology is and what a synchronicity is, do you have some kind of theory about why astrology works and makes sense? Yeah. I'm attempting to get there. I think it's a lifetime project to engage with this art and try to figure out how it works, how you can use it, how you can work with it. Um, you know, the classic essay by Carl Jung on synchronicity references astrology, but I have developed a relationship now for 20 years, uh, using various types of astrology. And I believe there's sort of two main things. One is that I think astrology itself is a sentient being. There is something sentient about it as a practice. And also as a practice, it is multiplicity. There is like no one astrology. There are as many astrologies as there are belly buttons. And there are traditions that we can plug into, but ultimately your relationship with astrology is like your relationship with an entity. It's it's like a technology for focusing consciousness, really. And in that way, if you're attuned to synchronicities and you get into that kind of consciousness focus, then yes, you will also experience similar things like, oh, this chart is describing exactly what I see. Well, actually, your your consciousness has been focused as a crystal lens to see those things. Interesting. So I would say someone who has what would be considered like more normal uh, post-enlightenment consciousness would say, okay, what you're saying to me is causal. So Mars doing this creates... No, 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 no. But I would, I would say from a synchronicity vantage point, everything is experiencing the same moment simultaneously. And therefore, it's not that Mars doing this is causing this. It's that we're all sharing the same moment and Mars can be one roadmap as to you know so it's like how do you read what signs do you read to understand what's currently happening does that um yeah i just want to go back i don't believe that astrology is causal at all when i say it is sentient in that way what i mean is that like um it has developed itself as certain practices to protect itself against things like being sold as a product because it is a mystery tradition it isn't it is a powerful way of looking at the world that if you are in command of you can know a lot of things that most people shouldn't know about the mechanics of what we're dealing with as incarnated beings and so because of that power it actually has developed sun sign astrology to make sure that it's like a gatekeeper you know, so if people stop at that level, great, let them. And once called to the work, they'll penetrate and they'll get to learn more rules and techniques and they'll get better. But it doesn't mean that everybody needs to know or even accept what astrology is. 
you know, so that that's what I meant by sentient. I'm not thinking that like the planet Mars is actually actively like beaming down a ray and causing a fight between you and someone. You no, know? and I wasn't I wasn't uh, suggesting that. I was just saying that people who aren't called to the tradition, just so like people who have what would amount to be like a just a superficial relationship to something, in trying to understand it with Western consciousness yeah. you know like what is what is this our superfa- superficial relationship to astrology would be you know like what would a scientist say it is right and it's like well it's ridiculous because yeah yeah but then what you're saying is that it's more like the architecture of consciousness almost Perhaps. And okay. And then if you think about it this way, if you think about the hermetic, uh, as above, so below, Okay. it's also as, as below, so above. So then in terms of, you know, this level of correspondence that you brought up with, okay, you know, you have Mars and there's a correspondence between other martial things going on, on many levels. It goes all the way down the chain, um, from super macro to macro to micro to nano. Um, and, so in all of these ways, um, one magical way to think of it is that these things aren't just corresponding with Mars, but they actually are Mars. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So on this program, one of the interesting things that the Internet has done for us is it gives us a larger view of looking at a big world and noticing patterns. And so I think sinkheads, as a general rule, like to just notice things and explore patterns and then explore meaning but so i've been trying to you know i've just as a shorthand been calling it psychic weather and to me that's kind of like the weather that blows through our psyches and pushes everyone's buttons in the same way but the the responses people have to the the way the the universe is pushing our buttons is definitely personal but oftentimes people respond the same way because we're similar creatures right and so that's that's how i'm and so this year has been so rough because it seems like it's uh one thing after another where i notice a lot of people a lot of people you know having trouble in relationships or divorces and this kind of thing or you know like uh serious serious things like dealing with uh deaths in the family Mm. and that kind of stuff and i so do you i mean does this square somehow with astrology as a technology for I mean, I'm I'm thinking it's a similar thing, kind of. Sure, and you can gauge that temperature uh, for sure with horoscopes that tell you where the planets currently are and what they're doing in the sky, and then that then is a sort of parable for the expressions that crop up in your daily life or your yearly life even. But what's interesting to track is if you pay attention across the years, you'll see, oh, this year is really intense and there's lots of death and strife, and then next year oh, this year is really intense and there's lots of death and strife. And then after a while, it's like, you know, life is really intense and and there's lots of death and often lots of strife. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, right now, Mars recently transited um, or stationed retrograde. And for people who are very sensitive to what Mars does, that will be something that will feature strongly in their life. Mars is the planet that governs things like separations and... um, you know, fighting for what you believe in, but sometimes that fight isn't executed so nicely. And, um, but yet other people might not actually notice that. So maybe this year is something that you're more attuned into, but I'm thinking of 
2014, Mars was retrograde in Libra, which is a sign that it does not have much power in, meaning Mars doesn't really like being there, and so he can misbehave when he's retrograde and, and misbehave in ways that are really uncomfortable. So I noticed that summer a lot of people were talking about how horrible it was and this was the worst year of my life and everything like that. But it's like you start to see that over time, that refrain keeps happening. Like when someone becomes aware of astrology, they're like, okay, great, it's not my fault, I can just blame the stars, you know? And it's like, yeah, but I don't know. It's kind of like there's a person who reads about the position of the moon every single day and I don't do that because to me that's lunacy. I really would not be able to like live my life if I had to think every minute about where the moon was. It's more like when I find a radical moment that I need to know, then I look and I get my answer, but I don't have to say, well, today the moon is in Aries, so I'm going to do this instead of that. You know? Yeah. So unpack what astrology is a little bit for our listeners who need like a, a basic thumbnail one-on-one course. So what okay. is... What is <laughs> just crack it open for us, please. Okay, so the most baseline definition, and this was devised by someone named Patrick Curry, who you should look up, is um, astrology is the art and practice of making meaning between celestial events and events on Earth. And when you put it that way, archaeoastronomy becomes astrology. All of star lore becomes astrology. Basically, the entire history of human beings looking at the sky has an astrological meaning. So when you do that, then you realize, okay, there's no one such thing as astrology. It's not just psychological astrology as practiced since the 1970s. It's not just newspaper horoscopes as practiced since 1930. So like, we have to realize newspaper horoscopes aren't even 100 years old yet. So in various cultures across time, human beings have looked at the sky and devised meaning for themselves religiously and culturally. And when I say culturally, I mean in terms of creating calendars. So if you think about all of these calendars, we have pyramid structures that align with stars. We've got all kinds of cuts on different bones that we found. Why there are 28 notches in this? Hmm, interesting. Why would that be? Well, lunar, right? Mm -hmm. So once you organize that, you realize human beings have organized their lives to the sky the entire time. And it, it used to be a religious impulse, um, mostly. And it's only been in the last 300 years that we've divorced the religious from the looking up. And so then what I like to do in my work is I talk about the history of how modern astrology developed out of various traditions. So Mesopotamian, and there were Egyptian star practices, but they didn't have an astrology like we think of today. They definitely organized themselves religiously with the sky, but they didn't have like, I'm an Aries, so we should get together. You know, they didn't do that. Um, and their astronomy actually was quite different than Greek astronomy. And yet in the Hellenistic period, the Mesopotamian, Egyptian, and Greek versions fused into what we now know as astrology. So what people, when people go to Barnes & Noble and pick up a book, mm -hmm. they're getting Western astrology as filtered from Greece through a dark period and then a reemergence in the Arabic era, dark period reemergence in Renaissance, you know, and then another very dark period in the European and then translated through lots of people who wanted to help astrology survive capitalism. So then it became psychology only like, Oh, it's just psychological. We don't predict. Okay. Well, you know, actually if you think about what undergirds parts of the Hellenistic, where this actually comes from, it's root in the practice just of Western astrology alone it has a predictive root, but that got chopped off because it was dangerous. You can't tell people they can predict things. It's going to be too much fate, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, but for a nuts and bolts, then, is it, it's, uh, okay, so... So that was the very macro historical. I yes. Have to, I, can't, I can't get away from actually, like, grounding people in that, because I need people to know, like, if you get anything out of this conversation, know that astrology isn't just one thing. Like, yes. that just has to be a thing. So at your cocktail line, you're like, yeah, what's your sign, except uh, which tradition are you <laughs> working in, you know? Um. But no, so nuts and bolts, you're born, the moment you're born, you can think of yourself as a biological crystal, and you're imprinted with the celestial ethers of what the moment that you come out of the womb, and that then becomes your blueprint that you get to work with. Um, if we want to go back to Plato, in the Republic, there's the myth of Ur, where you are disincarnate, and you are choosing your lot, and the lot comes with a guardian angel, and you don't get to see what's on the lot, but some people get better pick, like first pick. And you might get like, you know, 3,200 pick or something. Um, and some people come back as an animal and other people come back as a magistrate who never has to work a day in his life or something. So um, there's, there's different lots and you pick your lot in life, so to speak, and you reincarnate. But as you do so, you forget. And so the whole point of life is unfolding as the astrological weather continues to change in your incarnate being, you then relearn who you are and do your work according to whatever lot you chose. That's the Greek myth, one of them. If you want to think about it in more scientific terms, you're born, the sun is in a spot, Mercury's in a spot, Venus is in a spot, and we can take a snapshot of that, smash it down onto a two-dimensional map, and that becomes your natal chart. Could you expand a little bit on the difference between like the moon and the sun and the planets and how different people gauge... So the, the varying importance of these various celestial bodies? Sure. The sun is our star. It's our central star. So everything is in relation to the sun. When we talk about Mars going retrograde, we can only say that's possible because the sun is the benchmark for that motion. We all are orbiting around the sun. It's not to say, though, that astrology is heliocentric because our bodies aren't on the sun. We live on the Earth, so even though we have a heliocentric solar system, we have a geocentric astrology because it's trying to describe meaning for events on Earth, going back to that. So the sun is the animating principle for everything, and alchemically it's related to gold. Um, it is the sort of purest, um, untouchable metal. Um, and the moon is our satellite, and it is in charge of our needs and wants, and it rules our brain, um, and it is the counterpart to the sun, in a sense. It's the other luminary, and it's the second, I would say, well, depending on whether you're born by day or night, actually, it is the other important body to be looking at, and those two relate along, the sun is actually the thing that establishes the ecliptic, which is when it rises and sets, it creates a band across the sky, and that band is then the our solar system as we project out and the planets sometimes rise above and below that band but the sun sets that band in motion and um and when we're looking if we're just sitting on our like tiny ziggurat looking up we'll see the sun go across the sky every single night and sometimes the sun and moon join and create eclipses and so that becomes another point that astrologers look at which is not a planet but that mathematical meeting point of the sun and moon because they're so important becomes what we call the nodes of the dragon, the head and tail of the dragon. And those are two points that are very sensitive in people's charts and have been interpreted in various ways. Um, one of the ways is just there are points of increase and decrease. So, and the other way is that... It's are you there? 
I lost you. Commerce and exchange and writing. Is this what you're looking for? <laughs> it was, but then we lost you. I lost you for about... Oh, really? Ooh. Maybe it was the nodes, actually. If the nodes are <laughs> nodes darken things, then they actually eliminate them. So maybe the nodes were like, you can't talk about us on tape. <laughs> oh, that's funny. We had an eclipse in our in our talk. Yeah, I was going to say, well, what what does a rational intellect make of the the fact that the moon and the sun are basically the same size in our sky from where we are? And even though they're such, the the bodies are so uh, dramatically different. Yeah. Um, That's not something I think that astrologers think about. They only think about the the darkening on the earth and what it might mean. Um, That astronomical fact hasn't come up. But I mean, as an individual, it's pretty awesome that they are the same size. Well, for some people, it's like a deal breaker. And they use that for like, no, reality isn't real. And this is, you know, that coincidence is just too... It's too much for their minds to deal with. This is a computer program. <laughs> hmm. Oh yeah. Hmm. Which, which is interesting. In yeah. Hmm. But I, uh, I don't know. Here's... I'm not resonating with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm okay with the universe throwing really interesting things in our way. But um, what is the difference between the... every now and again? Like every three or four years, it seems like there's a within the more of the newspaper astrological community, they have this argument about the validity of sidereal versus some other type of astrology. You know, so like the yeah. So now we're talking about different zodiacs. Yeah. Could you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So. There are at least three zodiacs. I won't say there's only three because you can make one up today. Um, I'm actually making up a kind of astrology, but we can talk about that in a bit. Um, so the tropical zodiac is what the Western tradition of astrology is based on, and it's based off of the sun's relationship to the earth alone. So let that sink in. The sun and the earth when the sun is at its maximum point of light at a solstice or its minimum point of light at the other solstice and also at its equal points of light at the equinoxes, you have four points to then create an entire zodiac around. And this is what the Greeks did. They created the Western tropical zodiac based upon these four points. And so at that time, you had that area in the vernal equinox aligned with the celestial Aries, the star constellation behind that point where the sun was doing that action. And they codified the symbolic zodiac sign from that point of equal light. And that doesn't change because we're not talking about the stars behind at all. All we're talking about is when the sun is at vernal equinox, that begins what we call Aries. And in the tradition, the slippage has been problematic. But for the symbolic system, gauged off of those four points, equal light, max light, equal light, minimum light, you have a tropical western zodiac. And it's not talking about the stars behind at all, even if they have the same names. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then you have the sidereal zodiac, which says from that same point, we're actually looking at the stars behind, but the constellations are bigger than 30 degrees each. So a sidereal zodiac says... Pay no mind, it's okay, we're still going to chop it into sections of 30 based off of that Aries point. 
So you do have an Aries point, but that's the beginning of that zodiac. But you're actually still not because Scorpio is huge. I think is yeah, Scorpio is I think quite large. And so, how are you going to be able to have only thirty degrees there? You know, if it's really really big, it's actually showing you quite a different span. Like then, you know, any planet through Scorpio would take forever to get out of it. So even then, they're using a symbolic architecture on top of something that is on the fixed stars. Hmm. But I think the problem is that people, when they, when they question the tropical zodiac, they're inquiring about it because they think they're talking about stars. They're not talking about stars at all. They're talking about the relationship between the sun and the earth. And the confusion is just that they have the same names as the other stars. Interesting. The other right. Signs. And the petroglyphs we looked at, they clearly had a relationship to those points too because they were, they were noting that in, in the petroglyphs. Yeah, and then, yeah, we're, I mean, a, lo a lot of the archaeoastronomy talks not only about solstice points and equinox points, but also things called crossover lunations. So a crossover lunation is this, let's say you spend an entire year sitting at those petroglyphs in Idaho, and you watch the full moon every single month. At some point in the autumn, and also in the vernal equinox, the moon, the full moon, will, if, if you just create a band, like you have your sharpie and you're just noting on the map of the sky, okay, here's my ecliptic and it's one line, that's always the sun. But the moon will be alternately below or above the sun and it, it crosses over at two points in the year. And so these crossover lunations are actually important for marking other, other kinds of time. And it's a different way of looking. Like, we don't actually think about that. Like, oh, yeah, in the summer, the full moon is, like, way above the sun or, like, way below the sun, depending on your hemisphere, you know? And, and, but yet that was something that they thought was very important to look at. Huh. And so for the most part, we really don't have that kind of deep connection to the sky. No. Especially living in a city where, you know, what constellations or what can you really see? Yep. That's true. There is that dark sky movement, though. The island of Sark is the first dark sky island. Yeah, it, it's interesting because Boise's not very big, but it's big enough so that it kind of bleeds out a lot of the background noise. And so what you're left with is just the the constellations themselves. Hmm. But so, so, so you can see the the outlines, but then a lot of the the subtlety is gone. And that, but I remember when I lived in Seattle, it definitely there's not. There's not much that you Yeah, can... no, there's nothing and there's also clouds. Yeah, there's that <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, I think we've definitely lost a sense of connection to that movement of bodies across the sky. Especially because right now, for example, Mars is about to be super bright all summer long. He's gonna be a midnight star ruling the night for the entire summer. Um, which is pretty incredible. You know to have but who's going to go outside and look at that bright thing and go yeah that's mars man you know N not not many no no and then you know in regards to the as above so below that when when the space station started taking you know, night images of the various cities i i there was a part of me that thought oh, well of course you know we've become the night sky ourselves but then there's almost this uh, level of ego or hubris or something you know we don't need the stars anymore we are the stars yeah but it seems like we've lost some of the mystery in that too is is the way it feels to me 
Yeah, I mean, think of it too. In our culture, at least in English-speaking culture, we do have stars, but we we have movie stars. You know, we have these pop entertainment things, and at night we're going to films, and it's distracting us. This was actually something that started to happen in the early 20th century with film, and you know, you have your movie star and these dark places illuminated with light that now we're watching these almost fantastical beings. I mean, to go back to Prince and David Bowie, they've become immortal through what they've given us in their light. They've actually given us their light and vibration through music and the videos that they've made. All of the things that they produced in culture is starlight coming to us. We call them stars. There are stars. And even David Bowie, after he passed, past got a new constellation named after him even if it was in jest it was this it, how do we process this we must make a constellation for this god you know <laughs> right which is something that jake Kotz called uh synchromysticism i'm curious how i i recognized initially maybe a couple years ago that you were kind of weaving into this world of synchronicity, synchromysticism and stuff. I'm curious, how did you get involved with this this larger community? I've I've been called to astrology since I was 14, and that moment um, began a more private autodidactic education. Then I was in graduate school for 10 years, and once that ended in about 2012, I slowly came out as a full-blown astrologer because I was no longer under the tyranny of, if I let them know I'm an astrologer, they might not let me graduate. Right. Um, and they knew that I did my thesis about astrology, and actually the title is not astrological imagery, it's astrological imaginary, because I'm talking about the imagination and astrology. And the, what we imagine it to be and how it was imagined to be back then and what possibilities open up when you use it as a tool of the imagination. Um, and so I began going to a lot of astrology conferences in 2012 and touring the world, uh, visiting other astrologers in their homes in foreign countries. And yeah, but I mean, I don't, I didn't have like an agenda of like, here's a community I'm going to penetrate. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) It was more like, I'm just doing my thing and it just leads me in these places and I go where I feel called and, you know, um, yeah. But yeah, I would say that the larger astrological community, um, I began to be more visible there and I've slowly gotten more comfortable just being myself in that and, you know, I'm not a horoscope writer. I don't intend to be one. Um, I do read charts for people, but that's not my primary activity. So it's kind of a an interesting mix. But you just have to be yourself, really, and see where the cards fall. Well, with this show, we're definitely open to everything. And we talk to a lot of people who are right on that straddle of, hey, we're academics and we need to be taken serious. But at the same time this field that we really are inspired by is not taken serious. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's it's really hard because... So the question is, do you see... And I always kind of attribute this to this idea of divorce, that there's mom and pop, and there's kind of like this split between our... You know, our, something about Western rationality is just too too far the pendulum swung too far to one side do you think we'll ever get back into balance where we can we can do our logical science left brain stuff but also have this intuitive other you know the whole all the all the stuff that's just kind of missing from our culture at this point 
I think that fantasies of decline and this moment being the worst moment or some kind of like, oh, there's a, we've lost this thing. I think that's actually permeating all of human culture and history. So in my desire, my younger desire to want culture at large to accept astrology, I, I've lost that because I actually don't want them to. I don't want astrology to be regulated. I don't want government to be controlling who and who cannot become one. I don't want licensing in that way. And that's not to say that I don't think that it wouldn't help quality in terms of the community, but there's, it's kind of like if you're seeking approval from culture at large, then you're saying that it matters. And I'm saying it doesn't matter what mom and dad think. Do your thing, you know? And it, and it can be in a private way. And we're finding communities. We're building... There's more consciousness coming up now, I think, than, than I've seen in a while. And, of course, with the astrology community, it's not as robust as it was in the 70s. But the kinds and the quality of conversations that I'm having on the regular are really impressive. And so it doesn't need to be accepted by mainstream culture. It's that, you know, we can still do what we need to do with it. And people will gravitate towards it because we're doing really cool stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't see the need for legitimacy or approval. And in fact, that's why I'm writing that book is to look at the history of how many people have had the same exact conversation about wanting culture at large to accept what they're doing. And yet it's like amnesia. This conversation happened in Germany in 1920, 1930. And then obviously World War II happens and all of this material gets lost and Maybe there's a lot of people that don't read German, and so then these conversations crop up in the United States in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and all these movements happen in order to seek legitimacy of some kind, and it's like, why is that? What's the drive for that? Why do you need it? You know, It's not actually that important. It wastes a lot of energy to say... What, what would you gain by that other than a pat on the back and new taxes? You know, like It doesn't seem like it's worth it. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> You've been listening to Jen's Art on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out our website at jensart.com, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts of books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. This beautiful world You wish you were special